Good morning. The faithful and little. I like it. It's super good for you to join us today uh, as we continue through the book of Ruth. This is actually the last session in the book of Ruth, uh, and we're glad you have joined us. I'm glad that I didn't have to do the last session because uh, it was pretty crazy, right? Anyone who was here for last session? All right, yeah. Yeah, that's some, some hard stuff, but... Um, Man, Isaac and Sam have this ability to thread the needle on things that is, it's so powerful and important for us to see. So I'm not going to talk much about that. So there is no parental warning today, but I will skim through that material just so you know, because we need to actually, in order to get where we are today, we're going to need to do a little bit of a review. Okay, and we've been doing this pretty much every week because it's important. Ruth is a, you can tell, it's a narrative story. And if you're not picking up the things that are being laid down from the beginning, you might get lost, okay? So we're going to be going through the entirety of chapter four. I'm hoping that you guys have two hours ahead of you, maybe three. We'll be good. And I'm just joking. I'm going to try to get through this in a way that actually works for you and is is efficient and gets you right to the point, okay? So in order to start that, we need to go to the very beginning of the book. And this is how it begins. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephathrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, being modern people, we read that as, oh, it's text. They went on a journey. They might have, you know, they're going on a little road trip with the family. But that's not the case. And it's important for us to recognize really quickly the things that are being said here. First of all, in the days when the judges ruled, the book directly before Ruth in your Bibles is called Judges. And in the time of the judges, it says there was no king and people did what pleased them. There there was nothing holding things back. And if you go through the cycle of Judges, you'll see the kind of just brokenness of Israel. Uh, It starts out from the point of Joshua leading them into the promised land. They're in the promised land. They're supposed to clear the promised land. They don't do a good job. And then they get basically um, all of the the other non-Israelite people are attacking them in little tribes. And they keep crying out to the Lord. And there's this vicious cycle. And it ends in civil war. Civil war in Israel. That's how bad it gets. So Ruth is saying, this is where we are. But not only that, there was a famine in the promised land. And it's using words such as Bethlehem, right? Beit Lechem is basically the house of bread or the house of sustenance. It's a place where you get food. That's literally in its name. And they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. When you hear Moab, there's a storyline that goes to Moab that is not good. Moab are are historically enemies. They're people who are supposed to be kept from the sanctuary of God. Okay, so you have people going to the land. Now, the other thing is you're leaving the promised land because there is no food. And it says this, his name is my God is king. And his two sons basically are kind of think of it as deathly and sickly. So there's this clue that's coming out as we read these stories. And they they were Ephathrites from Bethlehem. They're from the house of bread, but they're Ephrathites. And behind this, Ephratha is fruitful. So the ones 
who are in the promised land, they're getting all of their sustenance in this place that God has told them it would be wonderful, you start to realize, no, no, something's wrong. There's something going on in Bethlehem, in Israel, that's not right. And it has, Elimelech has decided to leave and go to a foreign land. And it turns out that he stays there for 10 years. And as the story goes from here, you see, first, Elimelech dies. Then, his two sons die. So it leaves three widows. Three widows in a foreign land. The two, two of the widows are from that foreign land, but they've, they've joined with this family of Elimelech, and the, and the mother-in-law, Naomi, is now left with two widows. Two widows who, from the text, they haven't had children. The Ephrath, the Ephrathah, fruitful ones, have not been fruitful. They have no bread in the promised land. They have not been fruitful in the place that they have gone. And she hears that maybe there's food coming back to Israel. So there's this whole story of how she parts ways with these two, or is trying to part ways with these two widowed Moabites. One of them named Orpah and the other one named Ruth. And you have this story of these two, and it's almost like you can put them against each other. They both want to stay with their mother-in-law. One eventually decides to listen to the mother-in-law and go back to her people and her gods, because that way she could find a husband and possibly have a legacy. Ruth says, I will go where you go. I will lodge where you lodge. Where you die, I'm going to die. So you get this image of these two kind of contrasts, right? And Ruth says, no, no, no. I give up all of my cultural heritage. I give up the gods of my country. I give up the very place and the family from which I was raised, and I'm going to follow you, which means I'm going to a place I don't know. I'm going to to worship a God who I may have come to know a little bit in the family of Elimelech, but I'm going to this foreign land away from everything that I know. So you see, this this is what is happening. And it's kind of summed up in Naomi's words. She actually says, I went away full when she went to Moab, and the Lord has brought me back empty, full empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi, as she comes back with Ruth into the promised land, has these words on her, her mouth. She's like, don't call me pleasant. I'm, I'm bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And, and you have to understand, a widow in the ancient world is, is a very, very precarious situation. So now you have two that have come back to this land, and immediately, the, those that return and come back empty... Ruth's like, hey, how do I fill us up a little bit? So she determines immediately, I, I need to get to gleaning. I need to get out in the fields and get us some sustenance. Because that's why Naomi wanted to come back. Naomi said, hey, at least there may be food back where I am from. Let's go. So she starts to gleaning. And it's important to understand, gleaning is just a, a term for going in and, and taking the grain uh, that has fallen and beating the actual kernels out of it so that they're, they're edible. Um, and in essence, you're, there was Mosaic law that said, in order to care for the poor, what you would do is you don't actually go and harvest all the way to the edges of your field. You leave kind of the corners and the sides open so they can come through and they can harvest and glean from it. And then there's also this idea of don't go through your field twice. I mean, I'm that kind of person, by the way. You know, it's like, I got to go clean it up. I got to go check my work three, four times to make sure I did it right. Well, that's what I'd be doing is going back and picking up all the stuff that I dropped. But the Mosaic Law says, no, 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 you leave that. That is for the poor. That is for the sojourner. That is for those who don't have. 
So built into the system was this idea of taking care of the poor. Well, it just turns out Ruth goes out to glean, and she ends up in the field of this guy named Boaz, who Naomi has just said, hey, there's a worthy man. He's actually related to us. She ends up mysteriously in Boaz's field, and that starts this kind of interaction between Ruth and Boaz. Ruth goes and and she, she, operates, she works hard all day. And it says she comes, she comes home that first day with an ephah of, of barley. And the thing to know about that is, um, well, we'll get to that later on. I'm going to keep going along here because we've got to get to the threshing floor. Ruth and Boaz have this relationship, right, that is kind of building. It's simmering. He invites her to lunch and sits with her reapers. And, and you see there's, the kindness of Boaz is not just, hey, glean like everyone else. He, says, he invites her to the table and says, and he t- sends her with leftovers. And he invites her to actually, he, he tells his, re- his reapers and his, his own workers, he says, you know what, pull some handfuls out and leave them for her. So you get this idea of Boaz, this worthy man, and Ruth, a foreign woman who's doing all the right things that are somehow slowly coming together. We don't know what it looks like until last week. Right? Do you remember the story of the threshing floor? Naomi says, look, behold, Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor tonight. He's going to be there. He's going to be beating out all that stuff. He's going to get it all ready for harvest. Here's what I want you to do. Dress pretty. Smell pretty. I want you to go in darkness. I want you to look to see when he lies down after he's eaten and, and drank. Right? He is satiated man. Come on. That's the, that's the softest man ever. You give me my food, give me my drink, and I'm, you know, you see? Watch where he lays down, and in the cover of darkness, go and lay next to him. Do you hear that? Do you, and you're like, what's going on? What is going to happen here? But it's worse. Because Naomi says, And then, do everything he tells you to do. It's crazy. It's crazy, right? You're expecting them to make bad decisions. And Ruth does everything that Naomi says. Or does she? Because it's interesting. In the middle of that whole scene, she doesn't just stop and do all those things. She speaks out and says, hey, I want you to cover me with your wings. It's the same thing that Boaz had said that she had done when she came to Israel, when she had come to Bethlehem. She, the Lord was going to cover her with his wings, and she's saying, no, 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 you're the dude. You're the agent of his goodness. Why don't you cover me? And Boaz basically responds, and he says, your second kindness is greater than the first. And you have to ask, well, what's the first? Well, the first is her absolute above and beyond care for Naomi. For an old widow, a widow who doesn't have the possibility of having children again, she has very little possibilities, even when she comes back to the promised land. And he says, but you've done this thing because you didn't go after younger men. What does that tell you? Boaz is probably older. We don't hear anything of Boaz being married. We don't hear of anything of Boaz having kids. We just hear that Ruth says, basically in our parlance today, she's like, marry me. This young foreign girl says, marry me. While smelling good in the darkness with a man, you see see what's going on. 
But the text really, I, I think there's everything in the text to make us believe they did not do everything wrong because immediately Boaz is saying, okay, I'm in. I'm going to do as you said, but here's a problem. There's someone closer to you, to the family, to Elimelech than I am, and they get first dibs. They get first option of actually being the redeemer, and we'll get to that in a second. But he does this thing. He sends her with six measures of barley. We, uh, Isaac talked about this last week, and it, it's, it is super interesting. It says this, these six measures of barley he gave me. This is, an, this is Ruth telling Naomi when she got back. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how this matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Did you, you can't go back empty-handed. This, this should make us echo and think of Naomi says, I went away full and I came back empty. Boaz says, you can't leave empty-handed. But then he says, six barley. And the problem is, it says six measures of barley, but that's really not in the Hebrew. Six measures, what does this mean? I mean, let's face it. If, if you gave me six barley kernels, it's like not even a mouthful. I'd say that is near empty. Right, that is empty-handed. Pop out my mouth, chew it, and look at you, and walk away. Um, I, I use this example because it's something that I love. Think of a pomegranate. Man, you work so hard on that pomegranate. If you love pomegranates, you know what I'm talking about. And you're and you're like you're like super. You're trying to be strong but gentle at the same time. You crack it open and you're trying to pop the little things off without breaking them because if you break them, there's blood spatter everywhere. <laughs> right, right. So. You're careful, and you dig in six kernels. Are you kidding me? That's, that's, not, that, that's not what this is saying. And this is where we have to be smart Bible readers. What, is, what comes after six? Seven, that's correct. Seven, and if any of you have been in your Bible long enough, you understand that seven is a number that is packed with meaning. It is a number that basically symbolizes completeness, fullness. So when it says, hey, I came with six measures of barley, it doesn't matter what the weight is. It doesn't matter what the volume is. The storyteller is saying, are you hearing? Six measures. And so when we get to this point in the story, what we should be doing is like, oh man, it's a cliffhanger. Oh man, how is the seventh measure going to be given? Is the seventh measure going to be given? How is the seventh measure going to be given? You see, and this brings us to where we are today in chapter four. So we're going to go through some technical stuff. I'm going to try to uh, not bore you. Okay, here we go. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Okay, some important things. First of all, when you hear um, Boaz coming to the gate, 
This is something that we don't understand in our culture. Um, I'm going to use an example. It's not a great one, um, but it gives you kind of an idea. Uh, any of you remember First Street Coffee? It used to be over here. It's not, some of you miss it. Um, okay. I used to go into First Street Coffee occasionally in the morning, right? And when I'd go in, it's so funny. I did not go there very often. But when I showed up, there were the same four older gentlemen that were there. And they were sitting chatting with each other, and it seemed like their conversations were always super important. Sometimes they were talking about politics. Sometimes they were talking about kind of the civics, right? What's going on in Gilroy? What are the problems? And you're like, okay. I immediately got thinking like, well, maybe in our culture, that's one of the closest thing to the men in the gate, going to coffee. It's really not, but you have the idea. The issue is that little group at First Street Coffee did not have any weight in the city. Right, so maybe it's closer to just something like a city council. But even then, I want to say that it's different. So what would happen is, is if you needed to go and get something resolved, if you were doing a transaction, you would go to the gate of your city because that is where the elders would sit and they would judge things for you. So the, the elders, the people that were at this gate were, were known to be wise, and their intent was to sit there and adjudicate items that were happening within the city. It's like they're, they're your kind of like that. I want to do a transaction, I want to do a contract, I want to do whatever, I'm going to go talk to the wise men of the city and we're going to get it resolved. They have, archaeology has actually shown that many of the gates of the city, we have some of these where it shows that they actually built benches into the wall. This is where the sitting in the gate would be. You may have read, if you've been reading about the kings at all, you may hear these moments where, where like David sat in the gate, something like that. The whole point is this is an important place. This is a place that transactions occur. This is a place where justice goes down. And it is the place where the memory of the city exists. Because those elders have likely been there. People of the city likely knew those people that were in the gate. And they knew that they were there for a purpose. So they would go and use them. This is what Boaz is doing. And it says, and behold. Something I want you to take note of. When you say, and behold, especially in Ruth, you're like, okay, well, it's like all of a sudden, it's like, hey, and by the way, you didn't expect this, but look. And what does he say? The other redeemer just shows up. And you have to understand the difference between chapter 3 at the threshing floor. Naomi, from the moment Ruth leaves and goes to Naomi, you get this idea that there is no stop. There is no delay. Because you get it from Naomi. Naomi's like, he's not going to stop. It will be settled. The matter will be settled today. So you almost get this feeling that Boaz leaves the threshing floor, heads straight to the gate, and waits. And surreptitiously... There it is. The guy shows up. Friend, it says here. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a peloni alamoni, and, and it's basically a certain so-and-so. That's how it might translate. Now, we don't really know what this means, but it doesn't, we're not clear if there's a name for this guy. Maybe that is some version of his name or an idiom from the time. But the certain so-and-so arrived, and he sat down. He's ready to talk about this with the elders of the city. Right? And they all sit down, and it's, it's kind of a thing. It seems like Boaz is known because like he's asking people to sit down. They all sit down. So there's like, hey, we're going to do business. We're ready for business. Okay. Boaz takes a moment to describe, okay, here's the situation. Naomi, who was the widow of Elimelech, she's come back, and she's ready. She's ready to, to, to take care of her property. Um, so here's the deal. I, I'm coming to you. Because you're ahead of me. You're closer to Elimelech. So if you want the property, if you want to take the land, you can do that. You can redeem it yourself. And he says, I will redeem it. 
<laughs> Think from the story. What? No. What's going on? If he redeems it, then what happens to Boaz and Ruth? You see, that the whole point, the storyteller is trying to get you to think. I will redeem it? But we have to remember that Boaz is far more wise and crafty than we might expect. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I, can rede I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel redeeming, regarding redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Okay, it's kind of weird, right? We don't understand this stuff, but imagine like the sandal being kind of like you signing on a document, right? This is at the gate of the city. This is acknowledging you guys have made this deal. We've all witnessed it and it's going down. <laughs> but Boaz is tricky, right? So think of this story. Just imagine for a second um, your weird Uncle Bob, great Uncle Bob, passed away and he leaves you his house, right? But there's some stipulations when he leaves you his house. You know weird Aunt Millie? She's still alive. And she's bitter as ever. And she's ailing. So part of the thing is, hey, if you take the house, you must care for bitter Aunt Millie. We're not done there. Because Aunt Millie is ailing and sick, she needs a nurse. And there's a live-in nurse who takes care of her. She's a nice young woman. She just happens to used to be a part of a terrorist group. But there's more. If you really want this house, you kind of have to have a baby with a terrorist. You see. So, I mean, I don't want us to look at good old certain so-and-so and look down on him. This is a big ask, right? Because he could be thinking about it from this perspective. Then, certain so-and-so says, I cannot redeem it, lest I impair my own inheritance. And I want you to pay attention to those words. Remember those words. He's basically saying, if I do this, there's going to be problems. I mean, he might be married and have kids and like, oh yeah, that's going to be a problem, right? So, he can't redeem it because it's going to cause problems with his own inheritance. And then there's this custom, this weird thing of like, who takes off the sandal and gets it? You don't even know, by the way. Buy it for yourself. He drew off his sandal. Well, which one? Doesn't matter. The point is, this is the signature on the bottom line saying, Boaz says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the hard thing. You know the terrorist who we need to have? I'm going to do that. You know, weird Aunt Millie? She, she's welcome to come. There's this, this continued idea that Boaz is a worthy man. He is a Gabor Hayil. And he will do the hard thing, the difficult thing, because it's the right thing. Okay? Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi 
all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and, and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetrate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. You see how it's like bookended? You are witnesses this day, start and finish. And in the middle, there's this, this stuff. Uh-oh, I did it again. It's a new clicker. Um, okay. And you have in here this idea there are two profound things that are happening. Boaz is saying, I'm going to do two things. One, I am redeeming the property. But there's this other thing, which I'm going to tell you, if you really look at the, the Mosaic law, this is kind of gray. What I'm saying is, is that a redeemer, that, that's probably the closest thing that's happening here. The redeemer is the closest one, would actually go in and redeem. The whole, the, redeem. The whole purpose of the redemption is to care for the, the brother or sister who has, like, either they become poor or they lost their land or whatever. You are coming in and you are protecting and saving them. That's the point of redemption. The word redemption actually is used in the avenger of blood. If you know any of that story of the avenger of blood, literally it's the redeemer of blood. It is the same type of word. They are, they are called to make something right. So built into the Mosaic laws is wanting to make something right. Now, when it comes to the marriage, if you go to the text that's talking about this, it really doesn't, it says that if two uh, brothers dwell together and if one of them dies, then the remaining brother is to perpetuate the name by basically having a child with the widowed uh, woman. I know it's weird. Look, at, we, don't, we don't understand this. But the point is, I don't think there's anything indicating that Boaz is a brother, that he ever lived with Elimelech. But what I want you to realize is this idea of redemption, taking care of the one who needs, making sure that, uh, that basically going above and beyond, right, for the purposes of caring for another, no matter what it costs you, is built into this. It's like he's taking these two things. First set, I'm redeeming the property. Second set, I'm redeeming the name. I will pick up the cost of redeeming the name of Elimelech and his family and his, his sons. So all the people were at the gate and the elder said, hey, we're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built, built upon the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. There's two kind of key references to the Old Testament here. One is Rachel and Leah. And if you don't know this story, Leah is actually the older daughter, and this all has to do with Jacob. Jacob, uh, Jacob's father, Isaac, wanted him to marry in his own family rather than marrying a Canaanite or a foreign woman. So he sends him back to his family to get in touch with his wife's brother and says, go, go there, find a, find a wife there among our people. So he does, and after a long story short, he ends up marrying both of these people, but he really loved Rachel. The key of this story is Leah is older, which usually means she'll be first in the list. Rachel is younger. But I honestly believe that this order is this way because Rachel was barren. She couldn't have children until the Lord opened her womb. You see how that kind of speaks into the story with Boaz and Ruth. Ruth does not have a child yet, but there's this desire to carry on the name. So may her, her womb be open. And the fact of the matter is, is Rachel and Leah, along with their maidservants, were actually the parents of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is where Israel came from. 
Second, you have the story of the house of Perez. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. You got this story last week. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of it, but it's kind of a broken story. Um, Judah has three sons by a Canaanite woman. The first one was evil. God struck him dead. The second one did evil by not perpetuating the name of his dead brother and was struck dead. The third one, can you imagine what Jacob's like? I don't want to lose my third boy. I don't want to lose the last one. So he doesn't offer him to Tamar to do the perpetuating of the name. He holds back on the rule. He's like, I'm not going to do this. Tamar recognizes this, and she, takes, she basically figures out a way of working around the system, has a child by her father-in-law, Judah. It's kind of whack. It's kind of weird. But I want you to know that this is what they're talking about. The point is, in the brokenness of whatever, Tamar and Perez's house was blessed, even though it went down weirdly. You have a Moabites who's not from Israel, who's in the middle of this, this whole arrangement right now. You see the, the kind of the connections between these two. There's like a connective tissue. But in the middle of it, it says, to, this is to Boaz, may you act worthily in Ephathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. Remember, those are the terms from earlier. They were Ephrathites. May you act worthy, the one who has been called a worthy man already, may you act worthy in Ephrathra in fruitfulness and be renowned in the house of provision, in the house of bread. You see, it's like this, you're, you're, again, storyteller, you're like, he is, he is building something up. You're supposed to see, man, the, the page is going to turn, the page is going to turn. What's going to happen? So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. What's the seventh measure? It's a a son. The story comes full circle from from going full and coming back empty. We're only expecting provision. Naomi now has on her lap a baby. Ruth now has a son. Boaz now is part of this line. You see. And the women who would ask Naomi as she came in, is this, is this Naomi? And she says, no, call me Mara. They're now saying, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And you have to ask, well, whose name? Who's, who's the redeemer? Because it's kind of unsure. And I want to, this is the Bible plays this with us a lot. It says, he shall be a restorer of life. This one is clearly the, the, the baby. He shall be a restorer of life. And that actually translates, one who causes life to return to you. Life is returning through this child. But I ask you, in all of this, who's the Redeemer? May your Redeemer live. Like right now in this, it's almost sounding like the baby's the Redeemer. But we know that Boaz was the Redeemer. He was called the Redeemer. And Ruth has been the one acting worthily this whole time. Her love going out toward her mother-in-law. She's kind of a Redeemer. But at the base of all of this, that's why there's this twofold way. Blessed be the Lord. 
May his name be renowned in Israel. Well, that could, I honestly think this is all telling you, look at, did you look at all the behold statements? You know how things are kind of put together. You didn't expect it to happen, but it did. And, and all of a sudden, Boaz is in a field. And all of a sudden, Ruth is in a field with Boaz. You see, the Lord is behind it all. The Lord is seeing these, this worthy man and this worthy woman who is a foreigner and says, this is good. So the seventh measure, this idea of a seventh uh, barley, it's a little boy, a boy to carry on the line. So not, no longer is Naomi and Ruth just struggling for provision, but they now have possibility. They now have legacy. They now are doing what the law calls them to do, which is perpetuate the name of Elimelech and his boys. This is the seventh measure. And if, if we're paying attention, we're like, hey, I think it stops here. But no. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Oh, it just went further. It wasn't just a boy. It was a boy who led to King David, the most renowned king in all of Israel, the human king who did that. He had the, he, he, his heart was after God, right? He was the one who, who chose to do that. Now we know he didn't do all the right things, but the point is when two people come together living worthy lives that are difficult, when they understand that it's not their emptiness, not their inheritance, but it's the Lord and what they're doing in your life. The Lord is the one who pours in. The Lord is the one who makes full. Then you have something like this happen. Think of the counter examples. Elimelech, which translates, my Lord is king. He's done in a few verses. Did he trust in the Lord? I think the storyteller is telling us No. What about Orpah? Orpah was ready to go with her mother-in-law, but there's this distinction the storyteller tells us is one goes and one goes back to her gods. So she may think that God is king, but it's not Yahweh. It's not the God of Israel. And what about a certain so-and-so who basically said, this is going to muddy my inheritance? Do you see how... Just in little ways, people that we would not necessarily see as bad, they are actually coming across as, and you're realizing, well, man, they're making decisions that seem not the worthy ones. They seem like the easy ones. They seem like the ones that are more faced toward themselves and what's best for them. And I've been, um, I've been reading the Psalms recently, and I remember this one Psalm, and, and uh, I couldn't remember all of it. I just remembered that I didn't know it was even the first line. It said, uh, unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor will build it in vain. Have you heard that? Unless the Lord builds a house. Psalm 127. Those who build it will labor in vain unless the Lord watches over the city and the watchman stays awake in vain. It is, a, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. It's basically saying, hey man, God's the one who builds the house. If your anxiety is about how you can produce for yourself and how you can keep yourself safe and all those type of things, it's not that those are bad things, but if devoid of, of the one who builds the house, the one who provides the legacy, there's a problem. But did you know how this verse end, this, uh, this psalm ends? There's three verses after this, and it shocked me. I didn't, realize, I didn't even notice this before. 
Switching gears, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the room, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. There's this picture that children are blessed. Legacy is important. You, and the reason is, is that when you build your house, when you have children that carry on your name, your ideas, your, your, your disciplines, they are actually going out. And this is, this is literally honorable to the, the God of the universe. When you believe in Jesus, you're taking and teaching those things on. It's building. It's a good thing. It's the saying, I mean, to be perfectly honest, have lots of babies. Because he who speaks with his enemies in the gate, the whole idea here is when your, when your sons would grow up in this particular environment, when your sons grow up, they're the ones who are talking to those who would challenge you at the gate. They're the ones who are, are actually arguing your case. They're the ones who are trying to do justice on behalf of your name and your family. You see. And when you look at this, you see how the book of Ruth actually has a genealogy at the end? And it's basically going through the, the children that led to this moment. You see these, these generations that lead to David. And you see that, okay, there's Perez. We, we heard about him. You have Boaz in there. And you see that there's this importance that the storyteller is laying on this. No, no, no. It takes that building of a house, which comes from the Lord in order for this to happen. And, is, and really, if you look at the story of Ruth and Boaz, you're seeing it just looks for those who are likely and ready to do the will of God whenever they can. They're doing the hard thing. They're choosing the hard route. And the important thing is, is that this, this points to David, right? David is the guy, but we know we're, we're on the other side of, the, of, of Jesus in the New Testament. And we see what God would say to David even. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Like the psalm, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for a name and I will establish his throne, uh, the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, if you're paying close attention, you know your Bible. Technically, Solomon happens right after this. And Solomon looks like he's the dude. But then quickly it's determined, nope, not the dude. He doesn't choose to do the right thing all the time. The Lord is trying to make a house through David. And if we jump ahead a little bit more, here's another genealogy that matches the genealogy in Ruth. It starts a little earlier, and it's the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David. You see this idea of legacy and how a house is built, the Lord has been watching it and holding it together all along, looking for worthy people to step in. And who do you see as the worthy people who have made it into the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Boaz and Ruth. Ruth, a woman in the middle of this, and she's actually one of three women in the middle of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That is telling people. It is important. The writers in the New Testament, they understood this as well. This is the book of Hebrews where it's actually declaring that Jesus is the new and better priest, for example, that the old law has been done away with because of what Jesus has done. And it says, now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. This is speaking of the tabernacle, right? Moses was responsible to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. And we are his house, the son's house. If indeed we hold fast 
our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The whole point is, is that, no, we're, we're wanting to be those people who can boast about God's goodness. We want to be worthy. We want to live this way. We know that it costs. We know that it's weighty, but we have a hope that's ahead of us that Jesus has promised. Paul would say it this way, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we Suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see? And I think too often um, we are ready to take the non-suffering route. I mean, anybody? I'm I'm in. We avoid it like the plague. But here's the thing. Sometimes living a worthy life, as you can see in the example of Ruth and Boaz, it just costs something. It doesn't, you don't have all the answers when you make one of those decisions. It is a constant going and choosing. I'm going to do the harder thing. Because I have a hope that's before me. I have a promise that's already been given to me. The Lord is building the house and he's invited me in. I am, I am the house. We collectively are the house. Peter would, call it, would say that we're, we're spiritual stones that were like being built together. And it's temple imagery. It's like you guys are the temple, the place where heaven and earth meet. That's you and me. And we're called to live in this particular way. So when we think of the house of the king, we have to be thinking... The Lord builds this house. The Lord sometimes puts stuff in front of me that's difficult. Sometimes the Lord allows me to deal with difficult things. He puts it and says, okay, I'm with you through the whole thing. I'm ready to walk with you in this. Some of you have dealt with horrible, horrid things. Some things maybe you've done, some things that have been done to you. But I'm going to ask you, do you think God can make good of it? Because I think as those who are made into the house, those who have been adopted as sons and daughters of the eternal father of the universe, co-heirs with Christ, we have to ask, well, what, what is our life pointing to? When we live, when we make decisions, what is it saying to the outside world? What is it saying to the king of the universe? We're the house of the king. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And we're going to do communion. This is, this is a symbol of a lot of this. Jesus steps in. The genealogy of David, it doesn't end with David. Ruth and Boaz, the storyteller of Ruth, takes us to this point where we would see David, King David. Good, it's, it's awesome. But we are on the other side. We have the real king, the son of David, the one who invites us in to be called adopted And it's because we come to a table like this, a table that we haven't been invited to. I mean, we've been invited to, but we don't deserve to be it for all intents and purposes. It's not because you and I are good enough to be here. It's because he wants us there. Literally, the purpose is to understand we are supposed to be in the presence of the king. First couple pages of the Bible, last couple pages of the Bible, you see it. God wants to be in the presence of his creation, his holy, wonderful, creative, beautiful, people. We are that house. So I just ask you, as we come to this table and we think of the body, that you'd think about, it says the Lord builds the house and he's talking about children. What is it that the father of, the, uh, of, of all would do with his own son? 
Do you see? The Father would give His one and only Son so that you and I could be adopted, so that we could break the the slavery to sin and death. So He invites us to this table, and we say, okay, well, we remember. We remember the King. On the night He was betrayed, He took bread, and He broke it, and He shared it with His disciples, saying, this is my body. It's broken for you. And he took the cup. He said, this is my blood, blood of a new covenant. This is the blood that we pledge allegiance to King Jesus each and every week, knowing that this table has, we've been invited to this glorious table in the presence of our king. So we look at his sacrifice and say, I, I want to live like that. I don't know what it means. I don't know how it make, means I need to make the decision about this thing I'm struggling with. But I want to live this way, giving everything I have, going above and beyond for the other. Father God, you are so good and so gracious to us. Help us to live lives that look a little bit like Ruth and Boaz. Help us to live lives 